Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 2, The Lamp of Truth. Part 2. 11. The limit, however, thus determined, is an ultimate one, and it is well in all things to be cautious how we approach the utmost limit of lawfulness, so that although the employment of metal within this limit cannot be considered as destroying the very being and nature of architecture, it will, if extravagant and frequent, derogate from the dignity of the work, as well as, which is especially to our present point, from its honesty. For although the spectator is not informed as to the quantity or strength of the cement employed, he will generally conceive the stones of the building to be separable, and his estimate of the skill of the architect will be based in a great measure on his supposition of this condition, and of the difficulties attendant upon it, so that it is always more honourable, and it has a tendency to render the style of architecture both more masculine and more scientific, to employ stone and mortar simply as such, and to do as much as possible with the weight of the one and the strength of the other, and rather sometimes to forego a grace, or to confess a weakness, than attain the one or conceal the other, by means verging upon dishonesty. Nevertheless, where the design is of such delicacy and slightness as in some parts of very fair and finished edifices, it is desirable that it should be, and where both its completion and security are in a measure dependent on the use of metal, let not such use be reprehended, so only that as much is done as may be by good mortar and good masonry, and no slovenly workmanship admitted through confidence in the iron helps. For it is in this license, as in that of wine, a man may use it for his infirmities, but not for his nourishment. 12. And in order to avoid an overuse of this liberty, it would be well to consider what application may be conveniently made of the dovetailing and various adjusting of stones. For when any artifice is necessary to help the mortar, certainly this ought to come before the use of metal, for it is both safer and more honest. I cannot see that any objection can be made to the fitting of the stones in any shapes the architect pleases. For although it would not be desirable to see buildings put together like Chinese puzzles, there must always be a check upon such an abuse of the practice in its difficulty. Nor is it necessary that it should be always exhibited, so that it be understood by the spectator as an admitted help, and that no principal stones are introduced in positions apparently impossible for them to retain, although a riddle here and there, in unimportant features, may sometimes serve to draw the eye to the masonry and make it interesting, as well as to give a delightful sense of a kind of necromantic power in the architect. There is a pretty one in the lintel of the lateral door of the Cathedral of Prato, plate 4, figure 4, where the maintenance of the visibly separate stones alternate marble and serpentine, cannot be understood until their cross-cutting is seen below. 
Each block is, of course, of the form given in figure 5. 13. Lastly, before leaving the subject of structural deceits, I would remind the architect who thinks that I am unnecessarily and narrowly limiting his resources or his art, that the highest greatness and the highest wisdom are shown, the first by a noble submission to, the second by a thoughtful providence for, certain voluntary admitted restraints. Nothing is more evident than this, in that supreme government which is the example, as it is the centre of all others. The divine wisdom is and can be shown to us only in its meeting and contending with the difficulties which are voluntarily, and for the sake of that contest, admitted by the divine omnipotence. And these difficulties, observe, occur in the form of natural laws or ordinances, which might at many times and in countless ways be infringed with apparent advantage, but which are never infringed, whatever costly arrangements or adaptations their observance may necessitate for the accomplishment of given purposes. The example most apposite to our present subject is the structure of the bones of animals. No reason can be given, I believe, why the system of the higher animals should not have been made capable as that of the infusoria is, of secreting flint instead of phosphate of lime, or more naturally still carbon, so framing the bones of adamant at once. The elephant or rhinoceros, had the earthy part of their bones been made of diamond, might have been as agile and light as grasshoppers, and other animals might have been framed far more magnificently colossal than any that walk the earth. In other words, we may perhaps see such creations, a creation for every element and elements infinite, but the architecture of animals here is appointed by God to be of marble architecture, not of flint nor adamant architecture, and all manner of expedients are adopted to attain the utmost degree of strength and size possible under that great limitation. The jaw of the ichthyosaurus is pieced and riveted, the leg of the megatherium is a foot thick, and the head of the myodon has a double skull. We in our wisdom should doubtless have given the lizard a steel jaw, and the myodon a cast-iron headpiece, and forgotten the great principle to which all creation bears witness, that order and system are nobler things than power. But God shows us in himself, strange as it may seem, not only authoritative perfection, but even the perfection of obedience, and obedience to his own laws, and in the cumbrous movement of those unwieldiest of his creatures, we are reminded, even in his divine essence, of that attribute of uprightness in the human creature that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. 14. Second. Surface deceits. These may be generally defined as the inducing of the supposition of some form or material which does not actually exist, as commonly in the painting of wood to represent marble, or in the painting of ornaments in deceptive relief, etc. But we must be careful to observe that the evil of them consists always in definitely attempted deception, and that it is a matter of some nicety to mark the point where deception begins or ends. Thus, for instance, the roof of Milan Cathedral is seemingly covered with elaborate fan tracery, forcibly enough painted to enable it, in its dark and removed position, to deceive a careless observer. This is, of course, gross degradation. 
it destroys much of the dignity even of the rest of the building and is in the very strongest terms to be reprehended the roof of the sistine chapel has much architectural design in grisaille mingled with the figures of its frescoes and the effect is increase of dignity in what lies the distinctive character in two points principally first that the architecture is so closely associated with the figures and has so grand fellowship with them in its forms and cast shadows that both are at once felt to be of a piece and as the figures must necessarily be painted the architecture is known to be so too there is thus no deception second that so great a painter as michelangelo would also always stop short in such minor parts of his design of the degree of vulgar force which would be necessary to induce the supposition of their reality and strangely as it may sound would never paint badly enough to deceive but though right and wrong are thus found broadly opposed in works severally so mean and so mighty as the roof of milan and that of the sistine there are works neither so great nor so mean in which the limits of right are vaguely defined and will need some care to determine care only however to apply accurately the broad principle with which we set out that no form nor material is to be deceptively represented fifteen evidently then painting confessedly such is no deception it does not assert any material whatever whether it be on wood or on stone or as will naturally be supposed on plaster does not matter whatever the material good painting makes it more precious nor can it ever be said to deceive respecting the ground of which it gives us no information to cover brick with plaster and this plaster with fresco is therefore perfectly legitimate and as desirable a mode of decoration as it is constant in the great periods verona and venice are now seen deprived of more than half their former splendour it depended far more on their frescoes than their marbles the plaster in this case is to be considered as the gesso ground on panel or canvas but to cover brick with cement and to divide the cement with joints that it may look like stone is to tell a falsehood and is just as contemptible a procedure as the other is noble it being lawful to paint then is it lawful to paint everything so long as the painting is confessed yes but if even the slightest degree the sense of it be lost and the thing painted be supposed real no let us take a few instances in the campo santo at pisa each fresco is surrounded with a border composed of flat colored patterns of great elegance no part of it in attempted relief the certainty of flat surface being thus secured the figures though the size of life do not deceive and the artist thenceforward is at liberty to put forth his whole power and to lead us through fields and groves and depths of pleasant landscape and to soothe us with the sweet clearness of far-off sky and yet never lose the severity of its primal purpose of architectural decoration in the camera di correggio of san ludovico at parma the trellises of vine shadow the walls as if with an actual arbor and the troops of children peeping through the oval openings luscious in colour and faint in light 
may well be expected every instant to break through or hide behind the covert. The grace of their attitudes, and the evident greatness of the whole work, mark that it is painting, and barely redeem it from the charge of falsehood. But even so saved, it is utterly unworthy to take a place among noble or legitimate architectural decoration. In the cupola of the Duomo of Parma, the same painter has represented the assumption with so much deceptive power that he has made a dome of some thirty feet diameter look like a cloud-wrapped opening in the seventh heaven, crowded with a rushing sea of angels. Is this wrong? Not so, for the subject at once precludes the possibility of deception. We might have taken the vines for a veritable pergoda, and the children for its haunting ragazzi, but we know the staid clouds and moveless angels must be man's work. Let him put his utmost strength to it and welcome. He can enchant us, but cannot betray. We may thus apply the rule to the highest as well as the art of daily occurrence, always remembering that more is to be forgiven to the great painter than to the mere decorative workman, and this especially, because the former, even in deceptive portions, will not trick us so grossly as we have just seen in Correggio, where a worse painter would have made the thing look like life at once. There is, however, in room, villa, or garden decoration, some fitting admission of trickeries of this kind, as of pictured landscapes at the extremities of alleys and arcades, and ceilings like skies, and painted with prolongations upwards of the architecture of the walls, which things have sometimes a certain luxury and pleasurableness in places meant for idleness, and are innocent enough as long as they are regarded as mere toys. 16. Touching the false representation of material, the question is infinitely more simple, and the law more sweeping. All such imitations are utterly base and inadmissible. It is melancholy to think of the time and expense lost in marbling the shop-fronts of London alone, and of the waste of our resources in absolute vanities, in things about which no mortal cares, by which no eye is ever arrested unless painfully, and which do not add one whit to comfort or cleanliness, or even to that great object of commercial art, conspicuousness. But in architecture of a higher rank, how much more is it to be condemned? I have made it a rule in the present work not to blame specifically, but I may perhaps be permitted, while I express my sincere admiration of the very noble entrance and general architecture of the British Museum, to express also my regret that the noble granite foundation of the staircase should be mocked at its landing by an imitation the more blamable because tolerably successful. The only effect of it is to cast a suspicion over the true stones below, and upon every bit of granite afterwards encountered. One feels a doubt, after it, of the honesty of Memnon himself. But even this, however derogatory to the noble architecture around it, is less painful than the want of feeling with which, in our cheap modern churches, we suffer the wall decorator to erect about the altar frameworks and pediments daubed with mottled colour, and to dye in the same fashions such skeletons or caricatures of columns as may emerge above the pews. This is not merely bad taste. It is no unimportant or excusable error which brings even these shadows of vanity and falsehood into the house of prayer. The first condition 
which just feeling requires in church furniture is that it should be simple and unaffected not fictitious nor tawdry it may be in our power to make it beautiful but let it at least be pure and if we cannot permit much to the architect do not let us permit anything to the upholsterer if we keep to solid stone and solid wood whitewashed if we like for cleanliness's sake for whitewash has so often been used as the dress of noble things that it has thence received a kind of nobility itself it must be a bad design indeed which is grossly offensive i recollect no instance of a want of sacred character or of any marked and painful ugliness in the simplest or the most awkwardly built village church where stone and wood were roughly and nakedly used and the windows latticed with white glass but the smoothly stuccoed walls the flat roofs with ventilator ornaments the barred windows with jaundiced borders and dead ground square panes the gilded or bronzed wood the painted iron the wretched upholstery of curtains and cushions and pew heads and altar railings and birmingham metal candlesticks and above all the green and yellow sickness of the false marble disguises all observe falsehoods all who are they who like these things who defend them who do them i have never spoken to any one who did like them though to many who thought them matters of no consequence perhaps not to religion though i cannot but believe that there are many to whom as to myself such things are serious obstacles to the repose of mind and temper which should precede devotional exercises but to the general tone of our judgment and feeling yes for assuredly we shall regard with tolerance if not with affection whatever forms of material things we have been in the habit of associating with our worship and be little prepared to detect or blame hypocrisy meanness and disguise in other kinds of decoration when we suffer objects belonging to the most solemn of all services to be tricked out in a fashion so fictitious and unseemly seventeen painting however is not the only mode in which material may be concealed or rather simulated for merely to conceal is as we have seen no wrong whitewash for instance though often by no means always to be regretted as a concealment is not to be blamed as a falsity it shows itself for what it is and asserts nothing of what is beneath it gilding has become from its frequent use equally innocent it is understood for what it is a film merely and is therefore allowable to any extent i do not say expedient it is one of the most abused means of magnificence we possess and i much doubt whether any use we ever make of it balances that loss of pleasure which from the frequent sight and perpetual suspicion of it we suffer in the contemplation of anything that is verily of gold i think gold was meant to be seldom seen and to be admired as a precious thing and i sometimes wish that truth should so far literally prevail as that all should be gold that glittered or rather that nothing should glitter that was not gold nevertheless nature herself does not dispense with such semblance but uses light for it and i have too great a love for old and saintly art to part with its burnished field or radiant nimbus only it should be used with respect and to express magnificence or sacredness and not in lavish vanity or in sign painting 
of its expedience, however, any more than of that of color. It is not here the place to speak. We are endeavoring to determine what is lawful, not what is desirable. Of other and less common modes of disguising surface, as of powder of lapis lazuli, or mosaic imitations of colored stones, I need hardly speak. The rule will apply to all alike, that whatever is pretended is wrong. Commonly enforced also by the exceeding ugliness and insufficient appearance of such methods, as lately in the style of a renovation, by which half the houses in Venice have been defaced. The brick covered first with stucco, and this painted with zigzag veins in imitation of alabaster. But there is one more form of architectural fiction which is so constant in the great periods that it needs a respectful judgment. I mean the facing of brick with precious stone. 18. It is well known that what is meant by a church's being built of marble is, in nearly all cases, only that a veneering of marble has been fastened on the rough brick wall, built with certain projections to receive it, and that what appear to be massy stones are nothing more than external slabs. Now, it is evident that in this case the question of right is on the same ground as in that of gilding. If it be clearly understood that a marble facing does not pretend or imply a marble wall, there is no harm in it. And as it is also evident that when very precious stones are used as jaspers and serpentines, it must become not only an extravagant and vain increase of expense, but sometimes an actual impossibility to obtain mass of them enough to build with, there is no resource but this of veneering, nor is there anything to be alleged against it on the head of durability, such work having been by experience found to last as long and in as perfect condition as any kind of masonry. It is therefore to be considered as simply an art of mosaic on a large scale, the ground being of brick or any other material, and when lovely stones are to be obtained, it is a manner which should be thoroughly understood and often practised. Nevertheless, as we esteem the shaft of a column more highly for its being of a single block, and as we do not regret the loss of substance and value which there is in things of solid gold, silver, agate, or ivory, so I think the walls themselves may be regarded with a more just complacency if they are known to be all of noble substance, and that rightly weighing the demands of the two principles, of which we have hitherto spoken, sacrifice and truth, we should sometimes rather spare external ornament than diminish the unseen value and consistency of what we do. And I believe that a better manner of design, and a more careful and studious, if less abundant decoration, would follow upon the consciousness of thoroughness in the substance. And indeed this is to be remembered, with respect to all the points we have examined, that while we have traced the limits of license, we have not fixed those of that high rectitude which refuses license. It is thus true that there is no falsity, and much beauty in the use of external color, and that it is lawful to paint either pictures or patterns on whatever surfaces may seem to need enrichment. But it is not less true that such practices are essentially unarchitectural, and while we cannot say that there is actual danger in an overuse of them, seeing that they have been always used most lavishly in the times of most noble art, 
yet they divide the work into two parts and kinds, one of less durability than the other, which dies away from it in process of ages, and leaves it, unless it have noble qualities of its own, naked and bare. That enduring noblesse I should, therefore, call truly architectural, and it is not until this has been secured that the accessory power of painting may be called in, for the delight of the immediate time, nor this, as I think, until every resource of a more stable kind has been exhausted. The true colors of architecture are those of natural stone, and I would fain see these taken advantage of to the full. Every variety of hue, from pale yellow to purple, passing through orange, red, and brown, is entirely at our command. Nearly every kind of green and grey is also attainable, and with these and pure white, what harmonies might we not achieve? Of stained and variegated stone, the quantity is unlimited, the kinds innumerable. Where brighter colours are required, let glass and gold protected by glass be used in mosaic, a kind of work as durable as the solid stone, and incapable of losing its lustre by time. And let the painter's work be reserved for the shadowed loggia and inner chamber. This is the true and faithful way of building. Where this cannot be, the device of external colouring may, indeed, be employed without dishonour. But it must be with the warning reflection that a time will come when such aids must pass away, and when the building will be judged in its lifelessness, dying the death of the dolphin. Better the less bright, more enduring fabric, the transparent alabasters of San Miniato and the mosaics of St. Mark's, are more warmly filled and more brightly touched by every return of morning and evening rays, while the hues of our cathedrals have died like the iris out of the cloud, and the temples whose azure and purple once flamed above the Grecian promontories stand in their faded whiteness like snows which the sunset has left cold. End of chapter 2, part 2 Recording by Todd Ulbrich